0: you could sell backgrounds to everybody and then they'd get used to it and they, hey just click here and i'll, I'll hook you up right. that's true cool
1: what to do with you guys hopeless after all these years hopeless
0: it's on. some things never change
1: <laughs> let's start Although i
0: did have the boethian okay. moment while i was away <laughs>
1: Oh, go ahead. What happened? What?
2: I was so, thinking yes, when I saw that background.
0: We, uh, we drove to North Carolina for a funeral. Oh, and no. as we were driving uh, through Texas, we got a puncture in our tire. Oh, no. So, you know, we had to stop, get it replaced. Three hours later, we got another puncture in a different tire. Oh, <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> and I said, here we have two they weren't really flat, because the car tells you you're, you know, you're losing air, but yeah. two essentially flat tires in four hours, and I haven't had a flat tire like ever. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, could have been worse. There's no such thing as bad fortune. <laughs> you know, it's good fortune that That's right. repair shops were open when this happened. You know, it's good fortune that we didn't have a blowout. It's <laughs> good fortune it we went down the list. Um, you know, we still can get there on time
1: so that was good all of a spot with your boethius yeah (laughs) Yeah. i it's really funny listening to you karen because i was thinking oh sorry go ahead finish sorry
0: no no It was just i had a long list of all the things that made it good fortune instead of bad
1: yeah (laughs) or i guess worse fortune wasn't really good fortune well but i mean it was you got there in time and i was thinking in the as you were telling halfway through so i wonder you know waiting for the outcome so first flat, second flat. You got Boethius behind you now. So when you went when you went to the service garage for the second one, it was closed, and outside the door was the satchel with a million dollars. But <laughs> no. it just shows you I'm a, I'm a worse romantic than you are.
3: Certainly an optimist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, we
3: were
0: just glad we got there thirty minutes before they close. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's great. Yeah, isn't that? I'm. It's funny. It's funny. I'm so glad. I mean, I'm glad that you even had Boites on your mind. You, whether you knew it or not, you and Fred were together on that, in spirit right. in that moment. <laughs> let's, let's, let's start. I, I don't want to... Well, no, let's start. And I'll, I'll come. Let's start. Any, any prayer requests tonight? Any prayer requests? I'm going to put in a special prayer for your car, Karen.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I also got three chips for the windshield. It was a tough prayer. (laughs) That is a tough trip. Wow.
3: Mm -hmm. Three minutes.
1: Any any prayers? Uh, For Karen, for two (laughs) new tires. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we made it one piece, so that was the main thing.
1: That's right. Glad, Glad you did. I'm, I'm going to thank Boethius for being very much alive in our world today. Did you? Annie, and John. Annie and John. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day. Oh, Karen. <laughs> um, what to do with you. What to do with you. Um, thank you for the gift of this day, for the gift of yourself and the Mass this morning your words to us. Um, We're approaching the end of the Easter season. Um, It's a period of um, living the joy really that comes from your risen life and our trust that um, a new life is rising in each one of us. Um, Hold us there. Please strengthen us to hold ourselves there to not be separated to stay close to you to live that. Um, I ask for a special blessing for all of us in this work that we're doing. Flanner O'Connor is particularly important. She and Elliot's Murder in the Cathedral have um, cut so close to the bone. Um, they're dealing with martyrdom and baptism. They are at the center of our faith and um, both works um, take us into a world that we know in our heads but we're able to experience them more deeply through their work so we're grateful for um, what they do for us right now for Flannery O'Connor I ask a special blessing on friends of ours um, Anne and John. Anne is recovering um, from a serious Um, problem. Um, She and her husband have been together for a long time and um, it's not an easy time for both of them and there are signs of age and who knows. Watch over them please. Um, um, They both love you. Um, Strengthen them in their love, particularly Anne, Annie. She wants so badly to come close to you, so watch over them, Um, ask a special blessing on all of us here in this group. Um, Help us each to be strengthened by these works that we're reading, to continue in our efforts to put ourselves away, um, to make ourselves, either our great successes or our miseries, too important. You know to, um to learn to stand with you trusting in you day by day all day long um, we offer these prayers in your name in you Christ our Lord Amen let me make an announcement here before we start because once we start I'm, I'm gonna forget I don't know if you all got the email and um I, I think all of us are aware that we're coming to an end here in the work that we've done. To um, what's the word? Ambivalent time for me. Um, we have been together at this for so long, some of you forever. God I feel like I've grown up with you. <laughs> you guys have grown up with us. We've been at this for so long. Um, what I'd like to do is take next week's off. Um, and it's really more of a break for me, but um, it, it, it will give everybody time. But I'm just overwhelmed with work with st- um, stuff that's come up. and um, um, I'm, I'm not going to ask everybody to read the trilogy because the reading burden for me right now would be really, really difficult. So what I'd like to do is take next week off, so we won't make, we won't meet, and Seaton I'll ask Seaton tomorrow sees not to me. We'll do the trilogy. If you got my note, you all, you already know that. What I'd like to do is do the movie. The movie's not burdensome. It's a, it's a The movie is genuinely delightful and it's really good. There are things that I'm aware of um, from um, Suzanne's and my talks together that I'll bring up when we talk about them. What I'd like to do is take a class, just one class for each movie, and let it be sort of freewheeling and opening. I'll have some general comments to make, but um, it'll give all of us a chance just to enter into something that doesn't ask as much um, as reading would, because when we read, you know it, the reading unfolds over time. We have to allow time to get in the book and then respond to it. Watching a movie is not going to be that difficult, and if we take a week off, it should give you guys time to watch at least one of the movies, and maybe all three of them. My suggestion is if you can get them in, watch all three. They're great. If you haven't seen them, they're just, they're just great films. Um, Peter Jackson did an extraordinary job in what he did with Tolkien. I have some <coughs> criticisms of what he did, and Suzanne does too, because she, she's, she's read the books. Um, I haven't. Um, but that's what I'd like to do. We'll read the books. I mean, we'll, we'll watch the movies and then come together and take one evening per movie, no more. And then, what I'd like to do is return to T.S. Eliot's four quartets because I think they're major and I know poetry's not been easy for you guys. We've already done it, which should help. I just think the mystical nature of that work, the four quartets, is so great and so important that it would be worth doing before we leave. So, I'd like to go back to the four quartets, take a couple of weeks, not four weeks. I'm not going to take a week for each quartet. So, I'll take the first two quartets on a week and the next two and we will talk about them. And once again I'm going to put the burden of things on you guys and I'd like to open it up so that we all generally enter into the poems and talk about them. And then after that do Chesterton's Orthodoxy which will be an easy read. You you will enjoy him. He is I think the most one of the most amazing minds of the 20th century but even he has a more amazing heart. He's just a cheerful, he's like Chaucer. He has fun everywhere while he's <laughs> while he's cutting the heads of off the major critics in the modern world. I mean, he just takes on everybody, but he does it with such humor and such a, such a good heart. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. And then we'll end on a couple of gospels. So that's what I'd like to do. Um... Um, I'm not going to take a vote now. Barbara, you're off the hook. There's no vote. Um, We'll do it. If you guys have concerns or questions, send me. It's not going to change anything unless there's pretty serious reasons for not doing that because it seems to me that would be a good way to close things up. Anyway, that's what we'll do, okay? So next week we'll be off, and the week afterwards we will look at the um, Fellowship of the Ring. So the Lord of the Rings consists of three works, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Twin Towers, and The Return of the King. And um, you should know by now pretty seriously that Return of the King, which is the title of his last book, has been a recurrent theme ironically since the beginning. Remember, it closes the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It is one of the defining marks of all those ancient epics. So in one sense, we will be returning to origins to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, but in a new cast. So one of, one of my interests in looking at those films with you guys will be to say, D, D, Tolkien's trilogy is one of the most important works of the 20th century. He's Catholic. Um, in what way is this Catholic? Can we, can we see it? Can we find Christ in this work um, that will be unlike anything we've read because it has a f- fantasy element to it? It's an adventure. Quite, it's dealing with hobbits and elves and dwarves. You know, We're not in a naturalistic world anymore. We're in this fantasy world. Why did he do that? Um, does it support our faith? If it does, how? So just take those questions into the movie. You know, when you're watching the movie, um, enjoy the movie. Um, keep those questions alive. And, and when we pick up again in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll start with the Fellowship of the Ring and take up some of those questions. Okay? And if in-
4: you're brave and have time on your hands, read the books.
1: <laughs> that was really intended for me.
2: <laughs> okay. Yep. Yeah. Sam, I read the books.
4: Yay, good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Would the two of you stop? two of you have been doing this for years. Okay, um, Edward Arlington Robinson's Isaac and Archibald. Just quickly, let's pick it up. Remember when we started, this young boy um, is recalling this moment when he was young enough to be aware that something was going on with... Um, these uncles, these two old men, Isaac and Archibald. And he sets off one day with Isaac with a mind to finding out what Archibald's doing with his oats, with, you know, harvesting. And um, and that's it. I, I'm thinking about this and I'm aware because we're going to do, we're going to finish up Flannery O'Connor tonight and I'm, my thought is, my goodness, you, you can't have two poets Um, more strikingly different. Um, Flannery O'Connor is almost apocalyptic. There's a stark apocalyptic, intense sense to everything going on. It's it's almost as if we return to King Lear's world. Everything is, the importance of everything is just magnified tremendously. And here in Heisman Archibald we're, you know, we're ending a world in which a boy is describing these experiences during harvest time, and, and aware that something's happening to these tooled men. It's comfortable, it's colloquial, it's not stark at all, although it's dealing with death. But um, it's, a st- it's, a, it's a pretty serious contrast to what we've been reading. So, But let's make a place for it. Um, let's pick up in the, in the second section, um, and I'll read from it and just um, the other one following it just to try to keep this going. Remember when we finished, um, the boy had just sat down with Isaac because he was getting tired and the old man wanted to keep going. Um, So we're aware that there's this strength in these old creatures, their legs and hearts and the sort of hardiness of their souls. So they sit down and it begins on the second page around line 45 or so. So I proposed without an overture that we be seated in the shade a while, and Isaac made no murmur. Soon the talk was turned on Archibald, and I began to feel some premonition of a kind that only childhood knows. For the old man had looked at me and clutched me with his eye, and asked if I had ever noticed things. I told him that I could not think of them, and I knew then, by the frown that left his face unsatisfied, that I had injured him. My good young friend, he said, you cannot feel what I have seen so long. You have the eyes, oh yes, but you have not the other things, the sight within that never will deceive. You do not know, you have no right to know, the twilight warning of experience, the singular idea of loneliness. These are not yours, but they have been long mine, and they have shown me now for seven years, that Archibald is changing. It is not so much that he should come to his last stand hand and leave the game and go the old way down, but I have known him in and out so long and I have seen so much of good in him that other men have shared and have not seen. And I have gone so far through thick and thin, through cold and fire with him, that now it brings to this old heart of mine an ache That you have not yet lived enough to know about. But even unto you and your boy's faith, your freedom, and your untried confidence, a time will come to find out what it means to know that you are losing what was yours, to know that you are being left behind, and then the long contempt of innocence. God bless you boy, don't think the worst of it because an old man's chatters in the shade will all be like a story you have read in childhood and remembered for the pictures. And when the best friend of your life goes down, when first you know in him, the slackening that comes and coming always tells the end, now in a common word that would have passed uncaught from any other lips than his, now in some trivial act of every day, done as he might have done it all along, but for a twing twinging little difference that nips you like a squirrel's teeth. Oh yes, then you will understand it well enough. So all of these are intimations of death. They're on the part of a friend for a friend. We all know that. Somebody who's been dear to us. We're watching him age, um, particularly as we age. There are these little things that other people won't notice. And every one of them gives an intimation that something's about to happen. Death is... Eminent. but oftener it comes in other ways it comes without your knowing when it comes you know that he is changing and you know that he's going just as I know now that Archibald is going and I that I am staying look at me my boy when the time shall come for you to see that I must follow after him try then to think of me to bring me back again just as I was today Think of the place where we are sitting now, and think of me. Think of old Isaac as you knew him then, when you set out with him in August once to see old Archibald. The words come back almost as Isaac must have uttered them, and there comes with them a dry memory of something in my throat that would not move. If you had asked me then to tell just why I made so much of Isaac and the things he said, I should have gone far for an answer, for I knew it was not sorrow that I felt, whatever I, may, whatever I may have wished it, or tried then to make myself believe. My mouth was full of words, and they would have been comforted to Isaac, spite of my 12 years, I think. But there was not in me the willingness to speak them out. Therefore I watched the ground, and I was wondering, what made the Lord create a thing so nervous as an ant? When Isaac, with commendable unrest, ordained that we should take the road again, for it was yet three miles to Archibald's, and one to the far first pump, I felt relieved all over when the old man told me that. I felt that he had stilled a fear of mine that those extremities of heat and cold, which he had long gone through with Archibald, had made the man impervious to both. But Isaac had a desert somewhere in him, And at the pump, he thanked God for all things that he had put on earth for men to drink, and he drank well. So well that I proposed that we go slowly, lest I learn too soon the bitterness of being left behind, and all those other things. That was a joke to Isaac, and it pleased him very much, and that pleased me, for I was twelve years old. God. Okay, we'll pick up here next week. Hmm? or two weeks, sorry, two weeks. It's a tender poem of getting old. You guys wouldn't know anything about that, of course. Okay. I want to go over a couple of critical positions again just to to, to try to complete, extend what we've done with Flannery O'Connor. Remember that... Um, I think, I think almost all of these, I'm not sure, I think all of these come from mystery and manners. It's that collection of essays that I've told you about. Um, it's a remarkable collection of essays by a Catholic writer writing on the act of writing. It's it's, it, it, it's really brilliant and, and, and very, very simple. Um, she's not an academic. Everything she does is she does in simplicity. She says, um, about the novelist and believer in one of those essays. Any psychological or cultural or economic determination may be useful up to a point for the writer. We have all those concepts in our minds. We all know them because we've grown up with them. Those are our world. Um, I mean I hope our world has expanded. All of us have gone back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Shakespeare, so our world has enlarged somewhat, I hope. But those are terms of our world. Those are peculiar to us. They weren't there in the Greeks, the Romans, um, the Italians. Any psychological or cultural or economic determination may be useful up to a point for the writer, for the novelist. But the novelist will be interested in him only as he's able to go through them to give us a sense of something beyond them. The more we learn about ourselves, the deeper into the unknown we push the frontiers of fiction. Seems to me that one of the marks of a work of friction is that pushes those frontiers. I'm so sorry Stacy's not here tonight. God, so sorry, because I know she would love this. Um, She says of other writers um, across time, so often they sought pure spirit and tried to approach the infinite directly without any mediation of matter. This is pretty much the modern spirit and for the sensibility infected with it, fiction is hard, if not impossible to write, because fiction is so very much an incarnational art. If you can't put something in words, um, it, it, it could possibly be a warning to be on guard. And I'm saying that truthfully because there's so much talk about the ineffable, the indescribable. You know, at the center of our faith is a God who is beyond us, who took on our nature. He became incarnated. So what he did was make everything beyond us noble. He affirmed everything that's incarnational. The whole tendency of us as Catholics is towards incarnation, to take those thoughts in the depths of our souls that are dark and obscure and try to find words for them. And I'm trusting by now you all know what a struggle that can be. It's it's an awful struggle at times. Talking about the church and the fiction writer, she says, By separating nature and grace as much as possible, he, the modern writer, who's typically, in her words, Manichaean, I'll come back to that in a second, he had reduced his conception of the supernatural in literature in only two forms, the sentimental and the obscene. He forgets that sentimentality is an excess a distortion of sentiment, usually in the direction of an overemphasis on innocence. That innocence, whenever it's overemphasized in the ordinary, tends to become its opposite. Sentimentality is a danger. It arises out of our innocence. our not dealing with hard things. She says elsewhere that innocence leads to the gas chamber. I believe her. Watch what happened in Germany. Watch all the purges where human beings are innocent, where they try to avoid taking responsibility for evil, evil happens. It was one of the great things of Faulkner's The Hamlet. Everybody cast your mind back for a second. You remember in Faulkner's The Hamlet, everybody was going about, in this agrarian, innocent world, everybody was going about their lives as if nothing was going on, while Phlegm, S- Snopes, was using everybody to get ahead. Um, that's the fundamental focus of Faulkner's great trilogy, the the Hamlet, the town and the mansion. Um, if that's not clear, let me give just another example. I believe, I believe personally, this is me, that we live in a Gnostic world. Um, that Most intellectuals who write on serious things are, are partly Gnostic. They live in abstractions in their mind. They're not incarnated in the body. That poem that we've read so many times, Supernatural Love, is about a, a girl whose father lives in his head She pricks her finger and becomes immediately involved with her body. Um, We don't don't deal with people anymore. This is so strange. All of us right now are in an unincarnated world. We're, We're meeting each other virtually. We're not in our bodies. When we get on the phone, we're not in contact with our bodies. We hear a voice. When we're on the tube, we see an image. All of those are unincarnated. Everything about our world is pushing us past our bodies. And I believe it's leaving our bodies susceptible to all sorts of bad things. It's like we can take them for granted. Um, She says um, elsewhere, When Conrad said that his aim as an artist was to render the highest possible justice to the visible universe, he was speaking with the novelist's surest instinct. The artist penetrates the concrete world, the world of the body, in order to find at its depths the image of its source, the image of ultimate reality. Her whole calling as a novelist was to find in concrete things the presence of God. This in no way hinders his perception of evil, but rather sharpens it. For only when the natural world is seen as good does evil become intelligible as a destructive force and a necessary result of our freedom. It's So often with our freedom we abuse it and do bad things, things we regret. We've talked about the importance of the grotesque for her. Um, remember, I just want to underscore it tonight because we're going to be leaving her tonight. Um, she She's writing in what she would have defined as the genre of grotesque comedy. Grotesque comedy. Um, and she speaks of Thomas Mann as the true anti-bourgeois style. That the grotesque um, is in lots of ways the mark of a good writer. Now why does she say this? Um, because writers like Thomas Mann, Flannery O'Connor, Dickens in some ways, Hawthorne with his romances, all of those writers were, were presenting us with a world that in some ways got distorted slightly. They represented things in a way that was not familiar because all of them knew that most of us as human beings get trapped in conventions of respectability manners, of outward manners. We're like the Jews in the old world. That we define ourselves by outward manners, our success, our homes, our cars, our power, our prestige. We're back in the world of the Iliad. By all the material possessions we have, we give some sense that we're saved, we're among the elect, that we're good. But it's precisely those that the good writer wants to get beyond because people hide behind them, like the Jews, or... Faulkner's town. Remember that one of the things Faulk- one of the concerns that Faulkner had in his trilogy, particularly in the town, was to show that very often a respectable world becomes enabling. People hide behind it; they don't deal with things. So grotesque comedy is in response to that temptation, that fact about the world that very often we hide behind respectability, and um, in any way in which we do, we keep ourselves from, from getting to the ultimate reality of things. Um, the adversarial culture, hold on Mark, I'll come back. The adversarial culture is in some sense, some sense a weather vane. The adversarial culture is always rebelling against a respectable culture. You, you can't live in America for the last two centuries and not be aware of an adversarial culture constantly calling to task respectable, proper people and their hypocrisies. The difficulty is that the adversarial culture usually reverses what they're seeing. It's a mere reversal. It's the same thing from another perspective. It's like somebody who always prides himself and somebody who always puts himself down. The two Im- the, Their images are just mere reversals of themselves. Prides bind both of them. Um, grotesque comedy is different Grotesque top comedy is trying to take the social conventions that are so much part of our lives and get beneath them. So, not turning them, not reversing them in a mirror image, but getting to the heart of them. That's what Flanner O'Connor does. That's why so many of her stories deal with this confrontation between evil and good, of people having to come into contact. With evil, learn to learn to see themselves more truly as they are, and face a moment of grace. Are they going to Are they going to continue the way they are, or are they going to change? That's the direction of almost all of her stories. So those are just some of the perspectives that I gleaned from her her work, Mystery and Manners. But they they give us a they they give us some important lights on what she's attempt what she's always attempted to do as a writer. Mark, go ahead.
0: I was just going to ask for a little bit better definition of what you
1: meant by grotesque comedy. A couple of different examples. Yeah. Okay. And you kind of did at the end, but just yeah. the difference between that and the other one. I was just kind of yeah. Talking. Let me. Um, let me. I'm glad you asked it, Mark. Really glad. Um, her 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 fundamental principle as a Catholic was that the, her words: the world is under construction. Grace is always being offered. It's very different from a respectable world, a Greek Orthodox, or an Orthodox world, where grace isn't ongoing. Um, she believes that the world is under construction, that the Spirit is working in time with people, helping them to get closer to God, to bring Christ to them. And, and if you take that serious, you know that's going to mean a cross. So you've got to learn to see yourself more truly, face your sins, do something about them. So if the world is under construction, when grace and evil meet, it's always going to create a disfiguration, a twisted. I mean, look at so many of the saints persecuted on a cross. The the best image, Mark, is Christ on a cross. That is the most perfect image of the grotesque that will ever happen. You've got God who is invulnerable, eternal, unchanging, who took on a moral nature and allowed it to be treated horribly on a cross. So that that mixture of good and evil is figured there. So Christ on the cross is the best example of that. If you slide off into respectable literature, you move away from that kind of disfiguring or suffering or twisted, contorted things. You're in a comfortable, secure, armchair world. If you go the opposite direction, you're in a world of horrors. There's nothing redeeming I'm so sorry, Tracy here it was one of was, I think it was one of the points she was making last week that you end up in a world of horrors in which there's no answer to the cause of those horrors in Catholicism and Christianity um, those two things come together they're always they're always in conflict the The, the, the term the church has it for is the church militant that we're in a spiritual war that and that means inside of us whether it shows or not. You know, we're all looking calm tonight, And but I I know, and I think all of you know, that inside of us there's very often a turbulence, a anxiousness. We're struggling with things, and they don't always show, but they're there. One of the greatest images of it, Mark, one of the greatest representations of the grotesque for me are gargoyles. That's why we have them in our house. If you've you've been here, I think. If If anybody's been in our house, you know that there are gargoyles all over the place, because to me they're an answer to the modern ten- the, the modern Puritan tendency is to clean everything up, make everything sp- get out get all disorder out of the way. Cleaning house is a good thing you know but but to, but to treat it as if that's going to answer spiritual evil is the gargoyles are images of grotesque comedy, and if you look at medieval cathedrals which were all Catholic. You couldn't find a medieval cathedral without gargoyles all over them. Um, they're not just um, what do you call them? Warnings against evil. They are themselves images of confronting evil. So, and the last thing to say it, Mark is is to remember, like Dante's Divine Comedy, because Dante's Divine Comedy is an image of grotesque comedy. Um, remember that in hell, in Dante's Inferno, hell's not tragic. For the pagan world it was because death was the end of things. The pagans had this sense of this dignity in a man and that's all there was so when he died there was a great gravity to it. For the Christian that can't be because we know there's something after death. We talked about this when we were doing um, Chaucer. Remember when we talked about the rhyme scheme, the rhyme royal that couplets keep rhyming even when he's describing death? He's absolutely Boethian in that practice. Remember we talked about it. I know this is deeply a part of your thinking, Fred. It's just so good. Um, there's nothing that Chaucer did that wasn't Boethian. He had this wonderful comic sense of murder, adultery. Because that was not the end of thing. God was always doing something to bring good out of evil. So um, hell is not tragic in Dante. It's comic. It's showing, it's showing how stupid and foolish people are there's this wonderful joy being promised to human beings in our faith um, but it means confronting evil but also bringing this faith to it. That's why, that's why Dante's funny, that's why Chaucer's funny, that's why Shakespeare's later romances are funny is not the right word but they belong in a in a purgatorial comic world. They end in joy, in gratitude, in wonder. Those are the great gifts that God has offered us in, you know, the crucifixion. So, grotesque comedy is not a negative term. It's a. It's really a. It's a. It's a positive term to describe the, the coming together of good and evil and the outcome of it. Does that help, or do you, do you have, still have a question mark? Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. No, th- thank you. Sorry. It's a good it's, yeah, a good, it's a good question. Anybody else? Before we, before we start, you know, I've been thinking. Just incidentally, this is just. since I've been we're, we're in the C's group. We're winding up the Divine Comedy. And we're going to start Chaucer, and I love Chaucer. Um, um, he's such a spur to me and a conviction. I remember when I first read Chaucer in graduate school and I was shocked because I was surrounded by all of these scholar types and asked to read scholar, scholarly essays on Chaucer. And all of them were pedantic and dry and serious and Puritan. and you know the, I mean, you can't read Chaucer without laughing. And that spirit never got into essays. Just never. And it, it made me aware of a Catholic faith Um, that I think we've lost after the Reformation because after the Reformation things tend to get, and after the scientific world um, a Puritan a a quality of Puritanism tends to envelop us you know we have to clean everything up and and it affects our language, our way of looking at the world ourselves It's, it's just, there's a Puritan quality to the modern world that Chaucer didn't have, when you read Chaucer it, there's nothing he shows that the Shakespeare doesn't show us, but he treats it in a very comic way. He, his faith is just greater than any evil. That's absolutely Boethian. There is no bad fortune. There may be something wrong in the way we look at things, but that means we have to make some changes in ourselves. If, 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 if Boethius is speaking the truth, if you disagree with that, then we've got another conversation. But if you think he's speaking the truth then we've got things to do with our own character. We've got to live believing, knowing that God is bringing good out of things. Do we live that way? Are we living our faith? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a serious question when you read Father. When we read, I mean, uh, Chaucer, when we read Flannery O'Connor, we're in a darker world. We're in a modern world. Um, it 's it's grotesque comedy it 's still comic, but that comic character carries a dark quality to it that, that we, that we don 't find in Chaucer. Let me, let me stop. Can we any other comments or questions or comments about any of this before we look at O 'Connor? Okay, let's go. Can everybody, can you all turn to page 410? What I would like to do tonight, um, it's going to take some time. I would like to, it's been a couple of weeks since we've met. I'm going to read through passages fairly closely to try to keep us close to the narrative and periodically ask questions, but but I'd like to get us back into the text as much as we can. Um... The the questions that I'd like to ask, I'll ask at the end. But let me tell you those questions now, so you can keep them in mind. And if any of you have any other questions at the end, don't hesitate to raise them, please. But here are the questions that I'd like to get to, um, to sum up our work on O'Connor. Um, through the whole novel, Tarwater has young Tarwater Francis has been absolutely adamant, stubborn in refusing to be guided by old Tarwater. He's going to do everything he can to make himself his own man. He makes that clear in a variety of ways. He's going to do things his own way. He's not going to owe anybody anything. At the end, after he baptizes Bishop, a number of things happen. So one of the serious questions that I've got is what, what caused the turn Because you know the novel ends... God, I'm so sorry Tracy's not here. The novel ends with um, young Tarwater going off as a prophet. So a radical change takes place between the baptism of um, Bishop and his leading powderhead to go to the city to become a prophet. That's the first, and it's it's a really important one. And the other one that's sort of general is, um, where's Christ? Where's Christ? And that's a serious question. That's been at the heart of everything we're doing. Where's Christ in this world? Um, Everybody goes to church knowing Christ is there. Not a lot of people go outside of church believing that he's there as well. The whole effort of what we've done is to try to see Christ to work in the world. Where's Christ in this book? Old Tarwater shot Raber. Shot him in the knee and then shot his ear so that Raber has to buy a hearing aid. And he can't hear. It's, he's locked in this box symbolically. That There's an image of grotesque humor. He's locked in that box. Young Tarwater makes jokes of it. You know, Are you living in your head in that box? And it's a perfect image of modern man living in a mechanistic world. Trapped. In a machine world, he's got everything figured out like he becomes a machine. Charles Dickens is the first one that made that really apparent to a a modern world. You become what you do. In the industrial age, as Dickens renders it, people almost turn into machines. In a media technological age, people become like computers. There's this temptation of the world to turn us into something that we're not, to demean our humanity. Um, Tarwater shoots Raber in the leg and in his ear. Raber has to wear this box that affects him and in some ways defines him. And um, Francis kills Bishop. Both of them are prophets. Young Tarwater is at the end. So both of them commit these violent acts. So what do we make of that in a Christian world? But particularly a world in which the grotesque is calling into question respectability. It's like the Jewish world of these are the righteous things to do, this is what makes you good. If you do this, you're good. If you don't, you're bad. What do we make, what do we make of those two prophets? And finally, everything about the story has an Old Testament feel. Old Tarwater prophesies like a Old Testament prophet. There's that feel to it. Very stern, severe. Um, Is this book Catholic or fundamentalist or both? Uh, My question is if it's Catholic in what way? Do we just say it's Christian and leave it at that? Is there something about this book that we can point to that says this is a Catholic work that a fundamentalist could not do this? so that it goes right to the heart of our faith. So those are the, those are the big questions that I've got, but I don't, wanna, I don't wanna tackle them right now. What I'd like to do is do the readings um, and then come back to those questions, okay? So can you guys turn to 410? I'm gonna go back just before um, the point where we left off last week. This is Ray Burr, you know, on this vacation that they've taken. Um, he's wanted to get away from the city. And on 410, he's recalling his wife and that moment when he and his wife, she was the social worker then, who came to get young Tarwater and take him back. Is that right? Yeah. When the woman looked at the boy, she was horrified. So this is young Tarwater after Olthar would have taken him. On 410, the look of an adult, not of a child, and of an adult with immovable insane convictions, His face was like the face she had seen in some medieval paintings, interesting medieval, where the martyr's limbs are being sawed and his expression says he's being deprived of nothing essential. Mark, that's as perfect a definition of grotesque comedy as I could give you. Um, Limbs are being sawed off in his extremities his expression says he's being deprived of nothing essential that is because these men are living for something the world doesn't know and they're connected with it in their martyrdom Um, go down he had thought all this was possibly her imagination but he understood now that it was not imagination but fact she said she could not have lived with such a face she would have been bound to destroy the arrogant look on it That perfectly captures the radical opposition between the secular world and a world committed to God. Or to put it differently, a godless world, a world that denies God and a world that affirms him. Go down. Um, So he's calling to mind his wife and one of the reasons she left because she could not bear that face and, and everything it seemed to express. 410 at the bottom. He had known by that time that his own stability depended on the little boy's presence. He's talking about Bishop now. He could control his terrifying love as long as it had its focus in Bishop. But if anything happened to the child, he would have had to face it in himself. Then the whole world would have become his idiot child. He had thought what he would have, would have to do if anything happened to Bishop. He would, have, he, would have, he would have with one supreme effort to resist the recognition With every nerve and muscle and thought, he would have have to resist feeling anything at all, thinking anything at all. He would have to anesthetize his life. He shook his head to clear, clear it of these unpleasant thoughts. After it had cleared, they returned one by one. He felt a sinister pull on his consciousness, the familiar undertow of expectation as if he were still a child waiting on Christ. Can anybody flesh that out? What's, describe Bishop in the way he's, in flatter O'Connor describes him here. What's at issue? What does having this boy mean for him? Why is it so crucial? Why is O'Connor putting it this way? Doc, are you here? Karen, any thoughts on that? It's a powerful. Fred?
2: I I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but what the relationship, to, to me, Bishop is kind of a key character in this whole book. And what this kind of does is flesh out the relationship or the, the attempt to try to prevent the relationship from developing in that um, Raber really loves the child but every time that feeling comes over him, he pushes it away. But then he recognizes that he really can't get along without it. So he's in a constant turmoil Turmoil with, with Bishop. And one minute he's bouncing him in his lap and he has this overwhelming feeling of love. Yeah. And then his whole character is that that's the one thing he he feels like he, he, he can't he can't have or he doesn't want. So then he pushes the child away. And Bishop, on the other hand, loves Raver and is thrilled when he gets the the attention, but Raver, due to his character, can't really allow it to go on very long.
1: Yeah. What are the terms of the opposition in Raver? What exactly are the terms of the opposition? I'm sorry, Bob. I thought I was done. What's the question? Uh, what are the term, you, you're, you're describing this conflict. It's, um, it's in the. Okay. You're describing this conflict in Raber, and in terms of his affection for the boy. My question is: exactly, what are the terms of the opposition? What's at war with him? what's the he, he, he refuses to let him let himself
2: love and yet he has this intense need for it but he refuses to let him have it right so to me Christ kind of Bishop kind of represents in relationship with raber is Christ trying to bring that love and raber wanting it and for a relatively short period of time uh, gets wrapped up in it but then he realizes that he's about to lose lose himself, or what he thinks is himself, and pushes it away. Yeah. So that's the yeah. That's what I was trying to describe as conflict. But
1: yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it no. does.
0: Well, it seems to me like um, Raver sees everything, sees Bishop through society's eyes, and he like <clears throat> like Fred said, he wants to love him, but society deems him as more unlovable, and that's what's pulling at him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there are two worldviews in conflict. One of them is you can create your own self, you can create your own world. Raber's at a disadvantage because he's got a disadvantaged child. He can't do it. Um, um, but that's his belief, um, and he holds on to it in the hope that he, he can control him. He can do what he wants. But pulling at him on the other side, he says he would have he would have had to anesthetize his life. He shook his head to clear to these unpleasant thoughts. After it had cleared, they returned one by one. He felt a sinister pull at his consciousness, the familiar undertow of expectation as if he were still a child waiting on Christ. There's something in him made in the image of God. He's pulled that way by nature to love. But there's something else in him um, framed in worldly terms, as Karen said, that rejects that the the belief that man can make his life what he wants, that he can re- be reborn again, re-, um, re what's the word, regenerated, re um, what's the word when you're going to um, what's the words when you go into therapy and you're re. Anyway, it's that reorientation, you know, when you go into therapy with the understanding that it can change your life. So there are these two worldviews that that just do not get resolved. But the reason I wanted to read this tonight is because he knows that if he loses that child, it says um, he could control his terrifying love as long as it had its focus in Bishop. But if anything happened to the child, he would have to face it in himself. He would not have something he'd be able to control, that thing he'd be lost. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Remember when he comes back, um, Tarwater takes Bishop out and Raber watches the two of them leave the room. And on 422, um, remember he's just had (coughs) he's just had what he thought was this man-to-man talk with Tarwater. in which he gives Tarwater an ultimatum. You either do these things or leave. So he's reached a point of being adamant that these are the conditions by which they're going to go on or they're not going to go on. Tarwater takes Bishop out with him, and Raber lets him go. To me, that's one of the strangest things in the whole story, but he lets him go. Mm -hmm. He contemplates it. he falls asleep. um, On 422, after sleeping for a while, he wakes up. um, And... This is the way it runs, 422. The stillness disturbed him. He turned the hearing aid on and once his head buzzed with the steady drone of crickets and tree frogs. He searched for the boat. So that that box, it's a grotesque comedy image of Raber. He can click on life. He can click on and off. As He thinks he can have control of it. He can shut the world out. He can let it in at his will. It's a perfect image of... The mentality that that O'Connor's trying to give us in him. He searched for the boat in the darkness and could see nothing. He waited expectantly. Then an instant before the cataclysm, he grabbed the metal box of the hearing aid as if it were clawing his heart. The quiet was broken by an unmistakable bellow. That's the first bellow. He did not move. He remained absolutely still. The bellow stopped and came again. Then it began steadily swelling. That's the second The machine made the sound seem to come from inside him as if something in him were tearing itself free. He clenched his teeth. The muscles in his face contracted and revealed lines of pain beneath harder than bone. He set his jaw. No cry must escape him. The one thing he knew, the one thing he was certain of, was that no crime must come. The bellow rose and fall then. It blared out one last time. There are three bellows. Is everybody clear on why there's three? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, he baptized him, the words came. Before we leave it, any, any comments on the description of the, the machine? What's happening in this moment, symbolically, with this image? The machine made the sound seem to come from inside him as if something in him were tearing itself free, he clenched his teeth. What do you guys make of that image? Because he's so identified with that machine. You make of it. Something inside of him tearing itself free.
4: The love that he had for old Tarwater that he never allowed himself to feel. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Any thoughts? Did, it, did all of you hear Suzanne? Mm-hmm. Can you say it again, Don?
4: I don't know. I'm just guessing. I was thinking about the other thing that he feels, but won't allow himself to feel, is that he he loved old Tarwater when he was a boy. When Tarwater came and took him, he didn't want to go back for, he said, six or seven years. He kept waiting for the city to turn into Powderhead. And he, he believed him, he loved him, and he felt terribly betrayed by him.
1: I think it's all, yes, all to that. And I think it's also um, um, an an expression of losing Bishop at this moment. That the one thing that held him in love, as Fred described it, is being taken from him. So the one thing that still makes love possible in him is being taken from him. Um, When when he st- stares out at the darkness in the lake, and he knows, he knows now what's happened. The last description that we have of him is this on page 423. He stood there trying to remember something else before he moved away. It came to him finally as something so distant and vague in his mind that it might already have happened. A long time ago, it was that tomorrow they would drag the pond for Bishop. Remember once he tried to kill the boy himself. He stood waiting for the raging pain, the intolerable hurt that was his due to begin so that he could ignore it. But he continued to feel nothing. He stood lightheaded at the window, and it was not until he realized there would be no pain that he collapsed. So, at this point, he feels nothing. Um, um, And that's the last image we have of him. Let's go ahead. You remember what happened next. Tarwater gets picked up by this driver. And once again, like the like Weeks, the driver um, that took him into the city, we've got an image of a man, I think, that represents city life. The, um, the Weeks was the driver that made it clear that his whole way of living was to use the love of people to, to advance himself. The whole motive of the city is to use others for self-advancement. So they're exploiting the love that people have. In order to get ahead themselves. Here we've got, I think, a, a counterpart, another image. It's a truck driver, and, the, and this truck driver makes clear. He says on 427, "You got to keep me awake, or you don't ride, buddy." He said, "I ain't picking you up to do you no to, to to do you a favor." He's not doing anything for him. He he's only got him there because he wants to use him for himself. So he keeps telling him, "Talk, keep me awake, you know, do everything." It's ironic because the last description of tar water is he's going to go to the city um, to bring God to the to the sleeping children of God, the people asleep, people not awake. It's here that he says, 428, it was an accident, I didn't mean it, he said breathlessly, then in a calmer voice he said the words just came out of themselves, but they don't mean nothing, you can't be born again. He goes on and on, in that vein, and then on 4:32, we get Tar, Tarwater recalling the the drowning, the baptism, and the the recalling of it in his memory shakes him. 4:32. <coughs> Forty, 32 or 42. 4:32. The water slid out from the bank, from the bank like a broad block, black tongue. He goes on. You remember the boy climbs on his back and slowly pulls him back, and it's at that point that he baptizes him. Sitting upright and rigid in the cab of the truck, his muscles began to jerk, his arms flailed, his mouth opened to make way for cries that would not come. His pale face twitched and grimaced. He might have been Jonah clinging wildly to the whale's tongue. Um, um, He continues to maintain that stoic stoic stubbornness of his. He gets out, he walks um, towards the juncture that will take him to Powderhead and there at the juncture, remember, he meets this woman on page 437 who, um, um, who shames him. Middle of 437, The niggers told me how you done, she said. It shames the dead. Um, the boy pulled himself together to speak. He was conscious that no no sass would do. A tremor went through him, his soul plunged deep within itself to hear the voice of his mentor at its most profound depths. Go down, the dead are dead, and stay that way, he said, gaining a little strength, and scorns the resurrection of the life. So he's still maintaining his um, stubbornness to move with old Tarwater or towards God, He's going to go back to Powderhead with the intent, he says himself, of taking charge. He's going to run his life. He's going to do what he wants to do. On page 438, as he turns on the road leading to Powderhead, he's picked up, he walks for a couple of miles, and he's picked up by this guy um, in a lavender car. Page 438. And... and a little bit below the middle of the page. It was a lavender and cream-colored car. The boy scrambled in without looking at the driver and closed the door, and they drove on. Then he turned and looked at the man, In an unpleasant sensation that he could not place came over him. The person who had picked him up was a pale, lean, old-looking young man with deep hollows under his cheekbones. He had on a lavender shirt and a thin black suit and a pajama hat, Panama. or Panama hat his lips were as white as the cigarette that hung limply from his side. He offers him a smoke and a strange odor comes from it, I'm assuming it's pot, and then offers him a drink and um, on page 440 when he asks how the drink is um, and the boy doesn't like it because it has this heavy taste. He's had liquor before from a still, so he knows still liquor, but this is strange. It's thicker than the whiskey he had, and the man says, don't like it, huh? He said, the boy felt a little dizzy, but he thrust his face forward and said, it's better than the bread of life, and his eyes glittered. I hope everybody's catching the irony here. Um, The boy goes out. On page 441, the the driver drives off the road um, and takes the boy into the woods and after an hour or so he comes out by himself for 41. In about an hour the stranger emerged alone and looked furtively about him. He was carrying the boy's hat for a souvenir and also the corkscrew bottle opener. His delicate skin had acquired a faint peak tint as if he'd refreshed himself on blood. He got quickly into his car and sped away. When Totter woke up the sun was directly overhead, very small and silver sifting down light that seemed to spend itself before it reached him. He saw first his thin white legs stretching in front of him. He was propped up against a log that lay across a small open space between two very tall trees. His hands were loosely tied with a lavender handkerchief, which his friend had thought of as an exchange for his hat. Think about the language because in some sense It's as if Tarwater is still in the mode of innocence. That he thinks this guy picked him up, that he's a friend, um, that he left him there, that he's got this hanky, and so this word friend comes in there. Um, A lavender lavender handkerchief, which his friend had thought of as an exchange for the hat. His clothes were neatly piled by his side. Only his shoes were on him. He perceived that his hat was gone. Mark, this to me is another perfect image of grotesque comedy. I mean it is absolutely grotesque to the core in every description. This is the last place Young Tarwater could imagine himself being or in this condition. The boy's mouth twisted open and to the side as if it were going to displace itself permanently. In a second it appeared to be only a gap that would never be a mouth again. His eyes looked small and seed-like as if while he was asleep they had been lifted out, scorched and dropped back into his head his expression seemed to contract until it reached some point beyond rage or pain then a loud cry tore out of his out of him and his mouth fell back into place as if he suddenly realizes what's just happened. He sets all the leaves around that scene on fire to burn it and then he sets off to um, old Tarwater's home that is now burnt to the ground, 443 He comes to this Fort Birch that's important for him because it's there that he remembers that he went with Old Tarwater and that Old Tarwater used to speak about fondly. It had given the old man the greatest satisfaction to look over the field and in the distance, see his house settled between the chimneys, his stall, his lot, his corn. He might have been Moses glimpsing the promised land. Um, Remember that it's at this point... um, 444, that the stranger returns again, this voice. In the middle of 444, he felt a breeze on his neck as light as a breath, and he half turned, sensing that someone stood behind him. A sibilant shifting of air dropped like a sigh into his ear. God, is that fine? The boy turned white. Go down and take it, his friend whispered. It's ours. We've won it. Ever since you first began to dig the grave, I've stood by you, never left your side. And now we can take it over together, just you and me. You're not ever going to be alone again. The um, tarwater Francis shudders. Um, we talked about this before. It's that spiritual voice. I think all of us have experienced it. It's that voice that comes to us that says, "Do this," you know. And when we know that we shouldn't, and um, he sets fire to that area. Um, And then goes down to the field, and it's there that he sees Buford on a mule, the old Negro who buried the old man, um, and approaches the grave on page 446. These are the last pages I'll read, and then I'd, I'd like to stop and take some time to put this all together. 446, Buford says to him, top of the page, it's owing to me he's resting there. I buried him while you were laid out drunk. It's owing to me his corn has been plowed. It's owing to me the sign of his Savior is over his head. Nothing seeved alive about the boy but his eyes. Remember now, he set fire to the patch where the, the homosexual sodomized him. He set fire to the birch tree where the stranger, so there are these small patches of fire, Um, Buford watches him and then turns and moves off. Middle of 446. The boy remains standing there, his still eyes reflecting the field the Negro had crossed. It seemed to him no longer empty but peopled with a multitude. Everywhere he saw dim figures seated on the slope and as he gazed he saw eyes... Hold on, sorry. he gazed, he saw that from a single basket the throng was being fed. His eyes searched the crowd for a long time as if he could not find the one he was looking for. Then he saw him. The old man was lowering himself to the ground. When he was down and his bulk had settled, he leaned forward, his face turned towards the basket, impatiently following its progress towards him. The boy too leaned forward, aware at last of the object of his hunger, aware that it was the same as the old man's and that nothing on earth would fill him. His hunger was so great that he could have eaten all the loaves and fishes after they were multiplying. He stood there straining forward but the scene faded in the darkness. He felt his hunger no longer as a pain but as a tide. He felt it rising in himself through time and darkness rising through the centuries and he knew that it rose in a line of men whose lives were chosen to sustain it who would wander in the world, strangers from that violent country, where the silence is never broken, except to shout the truth. He felt a building from the blood of Abel to his own, rising and engulfing him. It seemed in one instant to lift and turn him. He whirled towards the tree line. There rising and spreading in the night, a red gold tree of fire ascended as if it would consume the darkness in one tremendous burst of flame. The boy's breath went out to meet it. He knew that his, this was the um, fire that had encircled Daniel, that had raised Elijah from the earth, that had spoken to Moses and would in the instant speak to him. He threw himself on the ground, and with his face against the dirt of the grave, he heard the command, Go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. The words were as silent as seeds opening one at a time in his blood. When finally he raised himself, the uh, burning bush had disappeared. The line of fire ate languidly. The boy stooped to pick up a handful of dirt. He smears it on his head, and then he moves across the field. By midnight he had left the road and the burning woods behind him and had come out on the highway once more. The moon, riding low above the field beside him, appeared and disappeared, diamond bright, between patches of darkness. Intermittently the boy's jagged shadow slanted across the road ahead of him as if it cleared a rough path towards his goal. His singed eyes, black in their deep sockets, seemed already to envision the fate that awaited him, but he moved steadily on, his face set towards the dark city where the children of God lay sleeping." Okay, a lot of reading, but I just wanted everybody to have a real feel for Okay, I've got um, um, a number of questions, and I would be really glad to hear any of your own. Um, um, My first question is, what turned him? Uh, Let me see if I can recount the episodes. Um... Just before he takes Bishop out to the lake, and Raber is having that frank man-to-man conversation with him, Raber says, here's a glass of water. Baptize him. You can do it. This is just to prove to you how absurd the act is. It's stupid. Only stupid people do this. It's a superstitious ritual. You're better than that. You're above that. Out of his stubbornness, Francis says, no, I don't need this. I mean, he's a little bit embarrassed. Raber takes the glass back, And we watch what happened. Um, Francis will take the boy out. He will, after a long time out there, he will drown him, baptize him in doing it. So in that one act, Tarwater learns, and this is, it seems to me, one of the most important truths of the book. Tarwater learns that um, the meaning of an action isn't always confined to the one we want to give it. I'll repeat that again. The, the The meaning of, or something like it, the meaning of our, our actions isn't all, aren't always confined isn't always confined to the one we want to give it. Um, he said it was an accident. He did not intend to baptize the boy. He intended to kill him. But what he does has a meaning greater than the one he intended. It's another way. It's another way of saying something we've been learning all along. Um, remember, Dante said that there are four levels of meaning. That what something means on the surface in is always what it means analogically. Oh God, here. Um, so he's had a hard lesson. Tracy, I've been waiting for you. God, I've been lamenting because we've been covering this stuff, and I had you on my mind because we just went through the baptism scene. I, I let me just encourage you to go on the audio just to pick up what we missed. But I'm I'm really glad you're here because. Um, some pointed questions. Anyway, he he learns in that moment. I just went through the last part of the book, Tracy, and I'm asking questions now. Um, he learns in that moment that what he intended is not finally what happened. Um, that the meaning given to it was not the one he intended. He intended to kill him, but he ended up baptizing him. So it's a humbling moment for him. And remember, when he recalls it in the in the cab of the truck, he shakes violently. Just recollecting it unnerves him. So that there's that moment of recognition in the in the truck. Um, when he sets off towards um, Powderhead he meets the woman at the juncture who, who shames him and says that the Negro had to do that and and that for him to scorn the resurrection of the dead was shameful. And Tarwater tries to muster an answer, but it's weak. He can't answer it because there's a truth to it. When he gets to um, the birch tree, he goes... Oh, oh, sorry, when, he, when he's picked up... Sorry. So he's on the road for hours, or for miles. He gets picked up by the homosexual in the lavender car, and he's sodomized. And when he wakes up, his pants are off, his legs are there. It's like, for me, Mark, that's a oh. grotesque comic moment. It's, I mean it's absolutely ridiculous given his pride. His pants are off, his shoes are on, his hands are tied, his mouth is twisted um, and it's only when he realizes what happens that his mouth gets back into shape and we realize that he's been sodomized. That, and this is really important, that seeds, the seeds of this man entered him. And I hope that's crucial because this image of seeds is really important through the whole last part. He's sodomized, um, and he's shocked. He burns the place, he goes to the, to the tree, the fork tree, the stranger comes to him, whispers to him, says, it's ours now, let's take control, we can finally have what we wanted. He burns that to get rid of the stranger, finally. So he gets the stranger out of his life. Then he goes down to the field where um, he meets Buford, who told him that he did what Young Tarwater should have done. He buried the old man. And then he has that vision of the gathering of people and Christ feeding them in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And he sees um, his great-uncle there. Remember, eagerly leaning to get to receive the bread, and is saying that it was the same as the old man's hunger, and nothing on earth would have filled him. His hunger now is so great that he could have eaten all the loaves and fishes after they were multiplied. So, this hunger opens in him no longer as a pain but as a tide. He, he will not be able to answer it except in Christ. Um, so, he sees this fire and he relates it to the fire um, that encircled Daniel, that raised Elijah, that spoke to Moses, and um, he throws himself on the ground. And he hears this this command. Go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. The words were as silent as seeds opening one at a time in his blood. There's another grotesque image, Mark. You've got the seeds of this homosexual who just sodomized him in him. And here you've got an image of seeds being transformed. He raises himself up um, and then sets off. And the last image we have is his singe eyes, black in their deep sockets, seemed already to envision the fate that awaited him. He moved steadily on, his face set towards the dark city where the children were gone sleeping. So all these things happened to him from the time of the baptism. Right? The the recognition in the car, the the meeting, confrontation of the woman, the black woman who shamed him, the... encounter with homosexual, the burning of the bush where the stranger was, so getting rid of the stranger, seeing the burnt field emptied, Buford there, the cross, the grave, the old old man buried, and then the vision of uh, the feeding of the um, the multitude. So my question is what turned him? Before we go to the other questions, what turned him? And how do we understand this? The peripatia has been central to every major work we've read, right? From Aristotle. The major action of any good work has as its center the, pair, the turn, the recognition. Right? The turning. That you go along in life thinking everything's okay, and then suddenly something happens, and you find yourself on your face, and you know things aren't the way you th- thought they were, and you have to change. And the parapetia here is in the last several pages. It doesn't come until the very end. So what turned him? How do we, can we account for the turn? Because he's been adamant, absolutely stubborn about following his great-uncle. So what happens here at the end? How do we understand it? Tracy, I'm going to put you on the spot because you're late. (laughs) I actually had a question for you I, I, because it's one of the I want to get back to it tonight, but you, you know, your comment last week about relief when you were, you know, you reading these other horror stories, and I was so glad for it. And I, I, I don't want to take it up now, but I do want to come back to it because now we're dealing with the end, you know. But what do we make of this ending? Why the turn? Can you you have any thoughts on it? What, how do we explain? You know,
5: it? But one of the things that struck me was his tenderness towards. Um, my mind is going to go blank. The little boy bishop, yeah, bishop. Prior to them going out on the lake, when the late when the woman was watching them, and I think he stooped and tied his shoe. Maybe. Um. I mean, in many ways, that was a turn because he was so repulsed, repulsed, repulse, uh
1: mm-hmm. by yeah.
5: bishop to begin with. Um. And the other thing that strikes me is the burning of it, you know, this the, um, what's the right word, like a, a it, I can't think of the right word, but it was, I can't think
0: of
5: it. It's okay. I can't think of the right word. It was just, um, well, I guess there are no words. <laughs> <laughs>
1: They're there somewhere. <laughs> They'll come out, even if they don't come out yeah. now. Why the turn? I, I don't know. Other than it was always there. Except he it, was
5: fighting against it, something that was always there, and he but, just surrendered to yeah, like, yeah, it. Yeah, it
1: was. But he, but something happens here, and so I. And it, there's a number of things that happen. I mean, it's a complicated. A lot happens in four or five pages. A lot. Yeah. Wait, wait, Fred, if you can, Barbara, do you have a thought on this? Why the I'm term? learning. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not letting you up. We're all learning. Sorry, Barbara. We're all learning. I am too. <laughs> I,
3: well, when you burn something, um, all that that's there is gone, and you get to start again. And so he keeps burning things, and it to me it's the it's the way of building something new. He doesn't like what he's what's happened before and he wants to start new but he it's over and over he keeps trying and and that idea of him being a prophet is always with him it's interior and so at some point and you're asking at what point he decides but i think it's a i think it's a succession of things that finally make him change and want to do what he's called to do I can't point out anything specific, but I know the burning is you want to really get rid of something and start over, you get it burned.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he, now
3: CSI can take the ashes and recreate it, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, and this being scorched his mouth, his eyes he makes a point of saying he will never see, he will never be able to look at things the same way anymore. Everything's been burned, everything's been scorched. Maybe Karen,
0: Burning to destroy it, it's more like a phoenix rising from the ashes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Well,
1: yeah. Yeah. Fred, did you have a thought? What What turns him? Francis, can you get that husband of yours back here? (laughs) Fred, you have a thought on that? Well, I
2: I had to step away for a minute, so somebody may have already said it. Um, To me, it's the the whole thing that is gets in. uh, Uh. Francis's way is pride in spades. And to me, what he went through was pretty much the total destruction of that pride. I mean, after you go through what he goes through, and it's, it seems to be true in almost any major conversion scenario, whatever it was that get, was getting in your way, and it seems like more times than not it's pride or something founded on pride. Yeah. Once that's just totally stripped away from you, uh suddenly you know all your excuses for not doing what you were supposed to do just kinda of go away. I mean when he wakes up, you know, after the, the event, I mean he 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 can't bring any of those components of pride back. I mean yeah. they're just they're just gone. I mean yeah. Yeah. and and that that to me then opens him up and the fire sort of is a reflection of the purging that takes place when that happens. I mean, it was it was a totally different sort of thing about how it went about. But I mean, to me, that was uh, till we have faces. She had to go through that, you know, complete destruction of what was holding her back in order to ultimately be open to, to realize, you know, what she what she could potentially do and to me that's what happens here so he you know he is you know there's there's nothing he can refer to or or get his arms around to 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 bring that pride back that was keeping him from it yeah and he witnesses the miracle Uh, um you know old tar water and uh suddenly it's, it's almost like it's that moment of heaven and earth getting together kind of thing where all of a sudden he sees this uh, vision of something that just, you know, I think knocks him him on his feet. And then he probably realizes, you know, all those things that I said I wouldn't do, I wound up doing. Uh, Everything that was getting in my way of becoming a prophet, uh, God,
1: God managed to get around in the end. Yeah i i've got I've got to come to this violence that you know both men, but before I do. Doug, do you have a thought on that what's what turns him?
4: I don't know that it's any it's any one mm-hmm. thing. I think it's all of these things.
1: Can you all hear, Suzanne?
4: Yeah I think it's all of these things gathering together. I think probably the moment that it crystallizes is when he realizes that his uncle is buried and there's a cross at his head. Um, He'd been rejecting all of that, everything about his uncle. He tried to reject his uncle's request to be buried. Um, And when Buford says, no, I buried him, I put the cross there, there's the image of, um, of him opening his hands sort of stiffly like he'd been holding something really tightly, and he opens his hands and lets it fall
1: Our water, yes, Francis,
4: yeah. yeah um and um and he says that he was looking out across the field and realized that he was seeing the land that he had said he would never enter, um so it there's just a lot, yeah, and then when he has once he's and i think he had to make that movement
1: a Rick. go ahead
4: um before he could have the vision oh uh,
1: yeah
4: I'd um and see the burning bushes or the burning tree as well as yep. the image of the yeah of the multiplication of the loaves. yeah I mean, it's like yep. he had to he had to let go of what he'd been fighting with
1: yeah
4: before he could do that i
1: agree let me let me offer you just a couple of thoughts to focus it. I mean, this is my own reading of that ending. It seems to me that there are two scenes that are essential for the turn, even though I think they're all they all play a role. But the two of them go to this notion that Fred touched on in his pride, this this stubborn refusal, you know, to, to he wanted to be in charge and do what he wanted to do and not answer to anybody. The first is what happens because of the. The, the, the baptism, the killing scene, that moment of recognition in the truck is, is, in my mind, crucial, absolutely crucial. Because it's at that point that he recognizes that the meaning of his action doesn't rest just in what he intended to do. What happened had a meaning completely different from the one he went in. So he's humbled by that. He's shocked. He's really undone. It unnerves him. Because it in one sense, it, it, it strikes at his sense of having control to give a meaning to his own life for his own life to be a product of what he intends it to be when in that act he realized that what he intended to do has a meaning very different um, from the one it's given so he learns that there's something beyond that humbles him I think that's the first one that's absolutely crucial It, it breaks that stubbornness, it leaves him shaken the woman's words shaming him I think are important but to me that that moment of recognition in the Cat of the truck when he has to when he has to admit that there's a meaning to things beyond what he can give them is humbling and the second is the sodomy and I think it's absolutely crucial because for a number of reasons that that to me is a is a first of all a violent violent act but it's an expression of the evil that he's not admitted his whole life and it takes control of him so it's another instance of that attitude that he takes to the world of having complete control when suddenly um, because of his innocence this guy is able to manipulate him give him a smoke give him a drink puts him out and then sodomizes him and the the greater irony of that is that he sodomizes him in his mouth and the seeds from that ejaculation enter his body and that 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 description of that cry wrenching from his mouth, putting his mouth back in shape. That there's this. That, that's that moment that's been so important to so many of Flannery O'Connor's stories. That that's that moment of grace, grace and evil meeting. um thanks, can me move it over. Let me just see if I can. Um, the boy's mouth twisted open to the side as if it were going to displace itself permanently. In a second, it appeared to be only a gap that would never be a mouth again. He'd been violated. The world just took control of him against you know, all these assumptions that he's adequate to take care of himself. His eyes looked small and seed-like. There's that seed. Seed-like, as if while he was asleep, they'd been lifted out, scorched, and dropped back into his head. His expression seemed to contract until it reached some point beyond rage or pain, then a loud, dry cry tore out of him, and his mouth fell back into place. It seems to me that those two events, the recognition in the cab and the recognition in the sodomy scene, shake him to his foundations, that that pride that he can do anything he wants, he doesn't have to listen, is undone by himself, because he himself killed the boy, and, and the meaning of that act was one he didn't intend. So he's directly involved in that. And in the other, in an act that's done by somebody else on him um, that he couldn't prevent, that guy took control of him and did what he did. And, my, and it seems to me that, that as, at least as I read it, that the, the combination of those two lead him to a point of making the decision. And that's when he burns the, the cypress, the pork tree, and burns the... Str- that's that's an active decision to get rid of that voice. Because up until that moment, that voice has had its way. Because that's, that's, call it the demonic, the evil in the human soul. He's done nothing to get rid of that voice. He actively gets rid of him. He burns him. So that's the first moment when he takes a choice against that way of life that he's prided himself on. Up until that moment, so there, there's a visible turn, and then he goes, sees Buford, he sees the cross. I think all of those things are preparatory to the vision. That it's because he's turned, that he's been viol- he's experienced the evil of the world. A whole new world has broken in on him, and that's a preparation for the vision of the, of you know the feeding of the. Um, of the multitude, and I think the—I mean—the part of the beauty of that is um, the the way in which this is grotesque comedy, Mark. The way in which Flannery O'Connor takes the image of seeds from the sodomy act and transform them, that those are seeds of prophecy, that he's going like this is um, wait this. Um, he's going to take an evil done to him and turn it to good. So we're watching a real we we we've experienced a real powerful change take place. Here's the other one of the other questions that I asked because I want I want to be careful over time. Old Tarwater shot Raber in the knee and in the ear, made him deaf in one ear and. <laughs> and gave him that box. God, her imagination is extraordinary. And um, Tarwater kills, young Tarwater Francis kills Bishop. Both men commit violent acts. How do we understand them? Particularly in light of the title. Serious question. Lots of peop, lots of Christians, um, remember I've told you this before, lots of older women used to write Planner O'Connor all the time and and criticize her and say, "Why don't you write nice stories?" <laughs> they wanted—I mean, look at Christ on the cross. I'm sure these were all Christian women. They wanted nice stories. What was she doing, writing these horrible things? Here, you've got an old prophet who uses a gun to shoot a guy in the knee and the ear, and then um, Francis Starwater kills bishops. So, what do you guys do with that? Serious question. Very serious question. Okay, here, um, sorry, Tracy. So, sorry, I'm not picking on you, because I, I just don't want to miss this question. You said, your response last week, you said you were in this reading group and reading these stories that you didn't want to finish. You're reading Violent, Barred Away, which, in which a good amount of tension and conflict and some violence take place. And your words, I remember, said you were relieved, (laughs) which I was glad, which honestly I was so delighted to hear, but explain that. You've got old Tarwater shooting Raber in the leg and the ear, and you've got young Tarwater killing Bishop, and both men claim to be prophets, so square that for us, would you please? (laughs) You'll be a friend of Mark's forever if you do. (laughs) He's been shaking his head for the last two minutes.
5: (laughs) I don't know if I can help you, Mark. I don't... um, You know, I, I think that... I think Tarwater killed Bishop on accident.
1: And, um, but he says no. He intend, said, I intended to kill it. It was an accident that he baptized him. He says, I think those are his words, aren't they? I, I,
5: I, I don't have any idea, other
1: than... Uh, let, me go, let, me, let me go at it another way, can I? Why were you relieved? Why did you use that word? Why were you relieved? Why did you say that? Reading this book.
5: Because it was an expression of just the, I don't know what the right words are, the expression of like the ungluing that one can feel, and that, you know, that I feel. Yeah. Just seeing him burning that, just burning stuff and just, you know, that... Oh, I can not have the word.
1: No, no, you do. You just, you did. You um, And your body perfectly expressed them anyway. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Anybody you know, maybe
5: a- the killing of Bishop was that collision of uh, you know, what we're capable of, the evil that we're capable of and the and the baptism was the you know the just the the mystery that we're capable of, I guess, or the kind of courage or fearlessness. I don't know, and the shooting I don't know, I mean, I think uh, you know. I don't know. I don't know how to express that. I have ideas on that, but I don't know how
1: to express that. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody else? Barbara? Fred? Fra- Francis? Francis? Francis, you're there. No, don't you go away. Come back here. <laughs> Fred, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, um, uh...
2: Spent a lot. Of, spent a lot of time mulling that over during the course of this book. It, it seems like that often, uh, some type of violence or a violent act often precedes what ultimately becomes a grace. And did uh, you know? I've all. You know, I I ask myself the question. You know, why did why did Christ have to die? Right. You it almost right. it almost seems like sadly for for us in order. You know, like for Francis, in order to flush all those things out that tend to get in our way, uh, whether it's pride or greed or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, as long as there's an element of it still there that we can still reach out for, um, we can still come up with excuses for, you know, why it's better that we get our way as opposed to God's way. Right. And it just seems like we can, you know, our our ability to rationalize is infinite. Yeah. And you, you, you have to get to a point where there's just no, there's nothing to grasp anymore. That you're just completely purged of that. And it seems like it goes through a lot of the, a lot of the literature that we've done in this class. Yeah. And I, I guess that's what, I don't know whether it's right or not, but I guess that's what I personally came up with is it just seems like. The nature of our character is such that in order to put all those things aside that get in our way, it takes something major to make that happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would put it, I mean, in terms of the book, that exactly what you're saying, Fred, that uh, we have to see how bad we can get, how bad, we have to be able to see the bad we're capable of in order to make the full return because just as you said, if we don't, we've got all these excuses, these you know, these layers. We have to see how bad we can be for that turn to be complete. Just stop for a second. I mean, and, and I think Fred's right. Every If you look at every, every major tragedy, particularly Winter, well Winter's Tale is not a tragedy, but Leontes had to reach a point of seeing how bad what he did was. Think about Peter, because my first thought goes to him when I when we go along this line, Christ chose him to be the rock of the church before his betrayal. Why did he do that? He knew, his, he knew because he even said to Peter, you're going to do this. Why did he let Peter do that? My own belief is he, he, he did that knowing that Peter would never be the leader of the, the church that we see in Acts. He would never be that man until he learned to see himself as he was. Until we realize how bad we are, our turn to Christ will never be as complete as it should be. We will always, as Fred said, we will always have something in the way. And they'll always be in terms of the conventional world, respectability, status, image, you know, all those things that that we live by that keep us from seeing the depths of our sins. So it seems to be part of what she's. I mean, what part of what she does in every work. She said that, and I think in one of the quotes, um, um, it's a wonderful. She said that. um, I can't. I'm not going to find it right now. I'm sorry, but what she says is that what she learned from her writing, as she watched herself write, um, is that she always found herself going to a land, to a place that was occupied by the devil. That um, every one of her stories is about a person coming to see himself as he is. Every great tragedy, every great work we've read um, that has any depth shows us people learning to see themselves as they are as the condition for a turn. Complete turn. Um, let me ask this before because we're getting close. Um, yeah, I can't. Um, um, is the. I don't know how to ask this. This is a Christian poem. It affirms baptism. It, it um, it takes as its central focus the act of baptism, which is an act of faith. It doesn't take any of the other sacraments. Um, baptism is that opening. It's the, it's the dying to the self and being reborn in Christ. That's what it symbolizes, and it's an act of faith. To a rationalist mind, just like Rayburn's, you're going to say, how stupid. Put some water on them and speak these words and you think that's going to change you? What it does for a believer is that it 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 opens a door um, in which the understanding is that a person will grow closer to God, he will recover who he was who he was from a fall um, with the help of God. So that's an act of faith. You you enter a world of faith by that act. Um, not to do it keeps you outside of it, removed from those things that God can do for us. We don't open to him. That's why that turn is so important. But my question is, is it? Is it just Christian? Is it Catholic? Is it fundamentalist? Could a fundamentalist have written this story? Is it Catholic? In what sense is it? And I'm glad to take any other questions you guys have at this point because we're we're getting close to time. Um, so if any of you have any other questions, I'd be glad if you I just have right
2: one now. question. I, yeah. I, think, I, I think I get the violent Barrett away now. Um, one of the things that just kind of stuck with me was the terrible speed of mercy.
3: Me too. And I, I'd love
2: to. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that because as I was going through it, I kind of thought, okay, I get it. I, I know what's going on. I've seen this before. And then all of a sudden, you know. You know, show the children of God the terrible speed of mercy, and I'm thinking, man, that's got to be that's got to be significant. But I'm not
1: sure I know what to <laughs> Barbara, go ahead.
3: I had the same problem. Mercy is good, so how can there be a terrible speed of mercy? I, I don't get it.
1: Seems
2: to me. Yeah, could, the only thing I could come up with, and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's right, but it's like it seems like. Here you've got here you've got Francis Tarwater, and he spent pretty much the entirety of the book rejecting everything that old Tarwater had told him, and yet, and right up right up to the moment where the last guy picked him up, he was still still pretty much taking that that line. Yep. And then in a relatively small number of pages all of a sudden he was a right. true prophet on his way to the city right so the only the only thing i only thing i could get out of that was that you know when when your moment comes <laughs> it it can happen in a part in a flash i i don't know if that's what it is or not and that's kind of why i wanted to ask to yeah. see what other people Doug, go ahead
4: that's what i was going to say fred it seems to me that the message that he's being asked to deliver is what he has learned, um, which is that you can, you can fight it forever, but when, as you said, when your time comes, um, it can happen in, in a an flash, instant, yeah. in, a, in an instant. Um, and that's what happened to him. As he was crossing the field toward um, Buford, he was saying, "Oh, good, it is Buford. I can go home with him and eat." And he was still thinking, of the, you know, his hunger, and he hadn't identified it with um, the hunger that Old Tarwater felt. It, that, that flash of mercy, that vision, that tree, his recognizing that he needed the. I mean, he took the the dirt from his. Uncle's grave, and smeared on his forehead. Um, that happened probably in what five minutes, less than. Um, so, the terrible speed of mercy is, you better get ready for it because it's going to hit you. And if you want to be, you want to be receptive. You want to be.
1: I, I want to put this a little bit differently. And it goes to everything we've been saying. If, if, I mean, and and it it goes to your question about the title again, Fred. I'm glad you guys are raising it. If in a moment, so if if there's some truth to saying we can't we can't completely go to God until we see how bad we actually are. Do we actually admit that? We get that from all the saints. It's one of the it's one of the truths that Robert Barron keeps pushing that. As you move closer to Christ you get closer to the light you see your sins more clearly those have got to be violent moments I'm I'm, so you look at your sin and you see how bad but in that moment what we're seeing here I mean to make sense of that line is um, the terrible speed that is it comes with that violence in that moment um, or, or coming out of the moment when he's been, say the the two violent moments, the two most violent moments for me at the end of this book, as I've already said, are the killing of Bishop when he has to, when he recognizes that what he intended to do is not what he did. That's a violent moment. So one way of looking at it, the terrible speed of mercy, that's a grace he sees. It's a moment of recognition. It's painful. It shakes him. He's actually shaking in the car when he gets up after being sodomized. It, what it does is. Or at least as I've tried, as I see it, the world has violated him. Evil has actually worked on him. This guy seeds. There's a in that moment he he, yell, he lets out this scream, and he sets off. the The stranger tries to tempt him. He burns him. So the change takes place there, and we see it in the the fact that he actually takes an act of act on his own to burn to get rid of that stranger. But it seems to me you have to see those moments for any of us. In a moment when any of us recognizes a sin, there's a grace in that, or can be. You know that in all Flannery O'Connor stories, that moment usually brings a character to a, a moment of choice. He has to choose. I mean, the Catholic Church offers confession. When we sin, we want to go. We want our awareness of that let me put this differently. In Dante's, in Dante, in the purgatory, you remember when Dante first entered hell, he was unconscious. He was asleep because our first moment of sinning is something we do unconsciously. It's too deep in our nature. When he enters purgatory, remember when he goes to the steps of St. Peter's Gate, he's helped to get there um, through grace. It's um, Lucia who helps him get there. That is a grace is working in his life, and it takes him to those three steps where he asked the three the white, the red, and the black, if I remember. You know the, so the 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 what's working on us when we go to confession already happened before that moment or we'd never be there. There was a pain that went along with whatever sin we committed that takes us that way. Raber does everything in his life to deny it. His whole attitude is, I can fix it myself. I can create myself. I can be reborn myself. I can be regenerated. I can do these all. I mean, that's the modern world that we don't need God. So the terrible speed of mercy to me is an absolutely appropriate line to 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 show the way in which God's mercy is there in those moments. Do we? Will the person accept them? Rayber had. Or I mean, Young Tarwood had two shake-up moments in the in the cab of the car and in the sodomy scene, you can say that those are terrible. They are terrible mercies, exactly as they were for uh, Oriole. They, they come through trials that force us to see sides of ourselves that we don't want to see, depths of our sins that we don't want to see. Um, at the church calls that the the journey of faith that you know that we continue to um, we continue to receive graces with those graces we see more deeply into our sins those sins shame us they make us regret what we do we go to confession um, so um, if we could take up the Fred, did you want to add something to the the meaning of the violent bared away?
2: No, I I, I don't want to add anything to it, But I think what we're talking about it takes takes sometimes takes violence to bear away what's holding us back. Um, at least that's how I interpreted the title, anyway. Yeah. So I'm good.
1: I had a conversation with a friend of mine, John Galton, who was, I think I've mentioned him before, he and um, Father Fessio, who founded Ignatius Press, created a program at USF called um, Ignatius Institute, and it set itself against the institution because it, it, it really believed pretty firmly, particularly the, the theologians were, were losing their calling and it was a period of liberation theology, and people worked up about it and turning away from more orthodox ways of looking at the world, saying. They founded the institution and it created all sorts of problems, all sorts of problems. Because indirectly, by its presence, it's convicted the rest of the university. They received a letter from the administration saying, What you're doing is divisive, i.e., it was violent. Um, and, I, and Herod what he did was violent it was a response to Christ that so often the response of God in the world creates a condition to oppose it some violence takes place but the, but the, I think one of the meanings of the passage and the violent one of the by the way one of the translation is the violent take it by force not just violent bear it away they take it by force that um, I thought Dante's rendering of it, remember I gave you that, um, that passage in the Paradiso in Canto 20, that it's the only way, or one of the ways in which we defeat God, that our love is so great that we get involved in this action of the cross that takes us to heaven. Um, it, it inspires a violence, um, and sometimes it may even involve the person in a violence, Joan of Arc, was a warrior. But the question is, what's going on inside in the interior of a soul is what's is what's moving that soul love of God or a refusal of him. That's what's at the heart of The Violent beard Away, this novel of Flannery O'Connor. Quickly, it, is this Catholic or just Christian? It, could a fundamentalist have written this? Tough question. I know that doesn't go directly to the work, but it in a sense it does. It, 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 it speaks to the meaning of the work. Is this just Christian in a broad ecumenical sense? Is it Catholic? Anybody have a thought on that? No. Okay. okay, Tracy, you weren't here, but next week, no class. The following week, we will start um, Tolkien's The Trilogy by film. We're just going to take one evening for each of the films. Next week, we'll do Fellowship of the Ring. So we're going to be talking about a movie. Um, so no reading. You, I hope you'll just rent the movie and enjoy it. It's a, it's a, or
4: read the book and enjoy it. <laughs>
1: Yes, read the book. <laughs> Y'all um, read
5: it last summer, didn't you?
1: Me or Suzanne?
5: Both of you. Weren't you
4: reading it last summer?
1: No, she's read I've it several read it, times.
4: I've read it three or four times. So.
1: She's been oh. she's been trying to get me to read it forever, and it's just... Um, when we were in New Hampshire, she actually started reading, I think, The Hobbit, something, one of the books, but... Um, and every once in a while I pick it up. But it's just, I get so swamped. I don't wanna, it's a, I'm want to? going to be trying to read that book. But, but when we meet, we're going to just deal with a film. So it's going to be, um, I think, a relatively open discussion. I'm not going to do what we ordinarily do when we're working through a book. We're going to look at a film. I'm going to give some opening comments on some of the things. But some of the questions you might ask yourself. Um, Tolkien was Catholic. Deeply committed, he he was in the war. He had a war experience. He came home from the war. He loved this woman deeply. the the fam The woman's family um, opposed the marriage. Um, I I think she was Protestant. She converted. Um, he he did some early writings, and nobody thought anything about them. Um, and um, he produced this one letter on uh, on Beowulf. For sorry, this one essay on Beowulf that that changed his career in some ways and then he produced these writings and even though they initially weren't received well, they eventually were and he became one of the major writers of the 20th century. Um, the, the books have had an important influence on the modern world. One of the questions that I want to ask when we pick this thing up in a couple of weeks is, why fantasy? What did he gain? This goes to your question a little bit, Mark, with grotesque comedy. Why did he write a book in which Elves and dwarves and hobbits exist. Why? What he could have written about human beings, but he didn't. What did he gain by writing a story as good as this story is, and um, um, uh, you know, representing the action in terms of these communities of creatures—elves and dwarves and hobbits? Why did he do that? What did he gain by that? So two weeks, two weeks we'll meet and start the trilogy. Um, and and Tracy, I don't know if you got my email, but we'll spend a couple of weeks on that. We'll go to TSLA's four quartets, and we'll do Chesterton's Orthodoxy and then the Gospel, and that's it. So whatever we have left to give, together as a group, we have to do in. In, uh, in those works, okay? Um, thank you. I really enjoyed doing Final It Away with you guys. It, it's been ages since I've read it. It's a powerful, powerful book. So I'm glad to have done it with you guys. Um, keep us in your prayers. We keep you in our prayers. And you guys stay safe. And have a good couple of weeks. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Okay? Thank
3: you. Good night, all sí mm.